a Podcast One production. Joining us on The Big Questions, the author of Longitude, Galileo's Daughter, The Planets, The Glass Universe, Davis Sabell, how are you? I am so puffed after being introduced by you as the Janis Joplin of science writing. I'll never get over it. It was at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival in 2017. To, to paint the picture, uh, I had a session with Dava, a philosopher and a, and a science journalist, and we were coming on stage immediately after Jimmy Barnes and Tex Perkins, with whom you might not be familiar. I am now. Australian rock and roll icons, and I only knew this as we were walking to the stage that they were finishing the previous session, and so I walked out to the audience and said, I hope you enjoyed... Jimmy and Tex, but now that you've had your warm-up, we are about to rock and roll. And I specifically said to the crowd, I want you to make so much noise when I introduce these people that Jimmy and Tex, who are just over there in this nearby tent signing autographs, are going to look around and go, what's going on? Right. And we introduced <laughs> Emrys Westacott as the Elvis Presley of epistemology. Crowd got excited. Robin Williams, crowd got excited. And then when I said the Janis Joplin of popular science writing, they went wild. <laughs> That was brilliant of you, really. Do, do you fun. do you enjoy that sort of recognition? We don't get that sort of recognition ever. So, <laughs> <laughs> for the moment, it was most enjoyable. Thank you. It's been an amazing journey for a girl who grew up in the Bronx. Yes, yes, it has. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and grateful every day. What was the Bronx like back into the last century? Because my my understanding of the first time I'd heard of the Bronx was the Paul Newman movie, Fort Apache, The Bronx, a, oh, a police yeah, it wasn't chief. wasn't like that. <laughs> and that was a pretty rough part of well, town. Well, it's a, it's a large area, so there's always been room for safe spaces and dangerous places. But the area where I grew up was adjacent to the Bronx Zoo and the Botanical Gardens. So it was very, there were very beautiful surroundings. And it was mostly... Uh, Eastern European immigrants. Uh, the neighborhood where I grew up was largely Jewish, and then right next to us was a predominantly Italian Catholic neighborhood, and everybody got along great. My dad was a family doctor and took care of everybody from anywhere. Tell us about your mum and dad. They were big readers, which I mm. think has had an important influence on me. And my mother was a scientist. She had a master's degree in chemistry. Mm. She stopped working when the three of us children were small, but uh, she did go back to work uh, once I was in school. And so that was great to have a mom who was interested in science and could answer questions and not ever think that it was odd for me to be interested in science. So and, I got nothing but encouragement. And, and the role in the family of where young kids are encouraged to read. My, my older daughter saw an ad on TV a while ago for an upcoming movie. They're remaking Stephen King's It, horror film, nasty clown, all the sort of questions. She saw this ad and thought, I've got to see that movie. And then she thought, I, I wouldn't mind reading the book. And I found the book in the bookshop store. It's 1,390 pages long. She says, no, I'll read it, I'll read it, I'll read it. And I remember watching her, and the first bit of it, she's not understanding it for about the first 200 pages, and then there's just this moment on the couch where she got, 
No. Oh, oh. <laughs> they're, they're, they're grown up, but they're talking about something that happened a while ago. Ah. And then suddenly it all, this, you know, this slight change in the narrative structure occurs to her and bang, and she's off and running. And she read the whole thing. She's up to about page 400 now, and it's just wonderful. to. What was it like for you? Because I have this image that for someone who goes on to be a great writer, say, in fourth grade when everyone else is writing, on the weekend I went to the shop, we bought an ice cream, it melted. You would have written, the sun peered shimmeringly over the horizon <laughs> as we approached the shop. My mission no was simple. Verbs. No No. <laughs> Could you write from the earliest of ages? I, I was interested in writing from an early age. And another thing my parents did that was uh, perhaps uh, inadvertently encouraging, there was a neighborhood writer who was, of course, not making much money and still living with his parents and needed a place to work. And they gave him a room in our house to oh. work in as a studio. And so he was very, he was like another older brother to me and very sweet. And I watched this person just sitting and writing day in, day out. And it was just so a I, natural thing for you to yeah. think that someone could dedicate an entire day or longer yeah, to writing. absolutely. When did the bug bite? When did you realise that writing could be your thing? I think I, I know I was always uh, encouraged in school. I always got uh, strong reactions from teachers that my writing was good. But I just was so lost at not knowing how to combine the interest in science with the writing. I mean, it seems so obvious now, but it wasn't obvious. And not even guidance counselors in school said, well, you know, you could write about science. So was the assumption you either had to write or had to do science? Exactly. So two separate worlds. Two separate worlds. And even when I thought about journalism, which I didn't think about much because I didn't enjoy reading the newspaper when I was young, mm. um, didn't occur to me. And there were science articles in the newspaper, of course, but um, I just stupidly didn't put it together. I remember Elmore Leonard wrote his book, Ten Rules of Writing, I think it was called. Oh, I've not seen that. One I of, like him. One of Elmore Leonard's book rules was he could not imagine an entire novel that could justify, in its totality, more than three exclamation marks. That's true. I read somewhere uh, that exclamation points are something you receive at birth, a certain number, uh, <laughs> to last a lifetime. And you have to, you have to, you have to be stingy. So in this social media age, some kids oh. have probably used their allotment of exclamation marks in a single text message. In a single text message, exactly. Well, yeah. you, you talk about inspiration, and that's interesting because the role of inspiration in your novels is, I, I, I find fascinating. Let, let, longitude. Where yeah. did the idea come from? The, the idea came from a symposium that was held at Harvard University in 1993. And I was invited to it so early that I had a chance to ask all the magazines I was writing for, what do you think about this idea going to this meeting? And what was the meeting? What was the symposium going to be about? It was called the Longitude Symposium. Okay. I, I, I really, I thought it was a joke at first. For people listening who don't know, longitude is the idea. When, you, when you've got your lines on a map, latitude goes north to south, and longitude is how far east to west you are? Yes, but the... 
it's confusing because the longitude lines really do run north to south and they help you measure your distance east to west. Exactly. So as you go east yeah. to west, which of those north-south lines you're on, that's which the measure of crossing? your yeah. longitude. Why would you have a symposium about something exactly. as why, why geeky headed, as longitude? Why Even headed, I'm thinking that's a bit nerdy. Yeah, and that's saying a lot for you. <laughs> um, and it, and they kept talking about the longitude problem and I, I really hadn't known enough to know that it had been a problem. But it turned out it had taken centuries for people to solve this problem of being able to de- determine position at sea. Is the, is the idea put very simply, when you can know how far north or south you are just by looking at the stars, but to know how far you've gone east-west becomes difficult because you're moving while the Earth's spinning the Earth and the stars burning. are moving as well. Right, so you don't have a fixed reference point. And you need to know what time it is in two places at once. And while we today just, I can, I've got you like about eight devices watches. on me now that yep. can tell me the time incredibly accurately. Back in the 1700s and before, we did not have these timepieces. That's right. So you go to this symposium, you, do you finally convince I someone finally to let you go? I finally convince someone to let me go. And... Uh, and it was fantastic. I, I had been a science writer for decades by that point. I'd gone to three or four science meetings a year, every year. And this one was superb. The speakers were all excellent and uh, it was three days. All the talks were interesting. There was a museum exhibit with it. All the uh, clocks owned by the collection of historical scientific instruments were out with their guts exposed and since most of the people at the meeting were interested in clock making mm. they were beside themselves I mean I, I saw grown men actually lying on top of glass cases with pocket telescopes staring mm. into the workings of these watches because from what I understand if, if you're into clock porn mm. looking inside some 300 year old device and seeing exactly where the springs and the screws were placed. Is, it's is, heaven. It's yeah. an erotic experience. Yeah, yeah. The book itself, what, what okay, made you think, so, okay, there's a novel in this? Well, I didn't think so. And I, let's talk again about whether it's a novel. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to yes, that. Yes, it's the closest um, we've come to having an argument. I like okay. it. <laughs> so I wrote my magazine story, and because it was Harvard Magazine, it went to all the alumni of the university, their parents, anybody who'd walked slowly through the campus over the years. <laughs> and it reached an alumnus who had been a history major and had just gotten a new position as top editor with a small family-owned pub- publishing company in New York. And he called me up and he said he loved the story and did I have enough information to turn it into a book. So after the year of the failed proposal for a magazine story. It was a book overnight. Do you ever reflect on the remarkable happenstance in that and where your life might have been if... Every day. ...this door did not open? Every day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And he was... His name was George Gibson. He's still a very good friend. Uh, And he had an accurate perfectly accurate sense of what he wanted out of this book. And he saw it as something for um, adults who would not identify themselves as being interested in science. Mm. And, uh, and that it would be the biography of a scientific instrument, 
which was perfect. I mean, you've worked with editors. Mm. Usually, they really don't know what they want until they see what you've done, and then they realize that wasn't what they wanted. Mm. Uh, but this was so specific. It was such a guiding light through the process of writing the book. And, and the reason it works so well is it's also a human story about this watchmaker well, yes. who, who's, who applies for this giant prize and the dudes running the prize don't like him, so he's, he's the outsider he's against the, outsider. the establishment. It's right. beautiful, beautiful stuff. But it's interesting what you say there about, about the, the story and the way the story is told because for Galileo's daughter, and I'd love you to tell us in a second the inspiration for that, but I spoke with someone who said they got a couple of chapters in before they realised, hold it, this isn't just a beautiful work of fiction there's there's a reality here as well that's the you know the tone in which the that, real story that story yeah. is told what was the inspiration for galileo's daughter it happened uh because of longitude so once i had license to turn the magazine story into a book mm. i needed to enrich my knowledge background knowledge and having been at the symposium i knew a lot of people who were experts in the relevant fields and I went to a specialized library. So the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors, oh. who are known as the Nacky Wacky. The Nacky <laughs> Wacky. Isn't that great? Oh, that's great. So they, their headquarters and museum and library are in western Pennsylvania. And I made a weekend trip there to read all their holdings about longitude. And one of the things I found was a treatise by an Italian-American, Silvio Bedini, about Galileo's work on timekeeping and mm -hmm. longitude. And in the book was a letter he had translated from Galileo's daughter. So that was the first surprise. I had no inkling that he had children. Mm -hmm. And then the daughter was a nun. And that just knocked me silly because I'd been taught in school that he was the enemy of the Catholic Church. Mm. And here he had two daughters who were nuns. And the one who had written the letter had something so unusual to say to him, which was the fact that the clock in the convent was broken, which was a crisis for them because they needed to be awakened at midnight to begin the Their round prayer of prayers for the new yeah. day, right? And so if the clock wasn't working, this was an issue. And she had been chosen the person to fix it. She, she was about 22 years old. And I was trying to picture this young woman with this clock repair job, mm. and she had not been able to do it. So she was writing home to Dad, could he please help? And this is at a time where there could be, the gates of damnation could be opened if you don't know when midnight is. It's They, they used to take that stuff very seriously. It was very serious. And so the whole situation was just a, a knot of interesting intersections. I mean, Galileo had children. There was a whole religious aspect to him that nobody was talking about. The daughter was a fascinating character and a beautiful writer. And even for most people, the Galileo dwelt in the world of timekeeping and horology right. as much as he did looking at the stars. Everyone knows Even Galileo more. looking at the stars and getting in trouble for that. But the right. fact that timepieces and time and longitude were things that concerned his was mind. Was something that had occupied him and that it had been a problem in his day and that he had devoted energy to solving the problem from from both possible pathways to a solution, the timekeeping and the astronomy. But what's interesting is, so you... you, you 
longitude comes along for you, and right back then is laid the seed for Galileo's daughter. Right. But I read just today, which is one way of saying in preparation for this chat, that before even longitude, the seed had been planted for the glass universe, your latest book. You'd, you'd heard of the plates. You'd, you'd heard of yeah. the subject matter. Yeah, I had. I th- I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was right right around the same time, mm. but it's certainly more than 20 years ago. The idea for this book came out of interviewing an astronomer, Wendy Friedman, about her work uh, in charge of a Hubble telescope key project. And she mentioned the name of one of the women as being fundamental to what she was doing. This is, so this is why I think the Janis Joplin comparison is so valid. In the same way that <laughs> Janis was a trailblazer in 60s, 70s rock and roll, that a lot of people said, look, that's really, that's a boy's thing. Mm. These women, these trailblazers in astronomy in the 1880s, 1890s and beyond, tell us a little bit about what is the glass universe? It is a collection of glass photographic plates taken over a period of about a hundred years, all through the night, every night, in both the North and South hemispheres, so that all the stars visible from the Earth are included. So the, the collection numbers about half a million pieces of glass. And it enabled several pressing scientific questions to be answered because uh, individuals, mostly women, could sit with these plates, which in effect held the sky still for hours at a time. Some of the photographs were made in hours-long exposures, tracking the same point in the sky with the telescope and then capturing all the light that could be accumulated in a couple of hours so that you got a depth of an image that the eye could never see. And what's important for people to note about this process of of mapping the stars and following them and then reading the plates, I mean, it sounds very sexy and exciting today, but a lot of this work... It does. Those discoveries, wow, I've just seen what a star's made of. But the work at the time was tedious and part of these women's skill was an ability to concentrate and perform quite routine work for incredible periods of time. Explain the the amount of work and how tedious it was in some ways. Yeah, well, you're looking at these plates and and, um, if you can imagine something that's microscopic in size, a barcode that's just a little tiny smudge on a plate and you're looking in through a magnifying loop and then trying to judge the uh, composition of this tiny little smudge. It's very difficult and uh, you you have to be very keen on developing pattern recognition skills and um, having a, a zeal for the work. And then to do that... Having a sense of how important it is. For hundreds or thousands yeah. of plates. Yeah, I mean, one of the... The, the woman, Annie Jump Cannon, who's really credited with perfecting the system, she analyzed about a quarter of a million stars. Wow. Yeah. A quarter of a million. Yeah. When you launched the book at the place of research, surrounded by the photographic plates, mm-hmm. that must have felt special. It was great. It was great to feel that 
the the people who worked there who appreciated the significance of the materials were so happy that the book was going to make them better known that they wanted to have a party <laughs> So explain to people who are listening what what one of these plates looks like. It's sort of a mixture of the big and the small at the same time, isn't it? Well, there were different sizes used. But if you picture a window pane, most of them are about that size. But within... Some were very large, 14 by 17 inches. Oh, do I have to do that in centimetres? <laughs> yeah. Well, you multiply yeah. by 2.54. <laughs> but within that giant window pane... You're then scaling down to an incredibly maybe small speck of that. There are so many things on the window pane because since the light has been allowed to accumulate over time, you've picked up stars that no one has ever seen through the telescope because the retina is always just of the moment. It Mm. it can't look at something for two hours and just collect the light the way these photographic plates could. And then, so within that photographic plate, someone's then taking a magnifying glass and getting in incredibly close to a small section of it and reading a story about our universe. Right. And that's why even today, there are parts of those plates that have never been fully examined. And these women who then did the classifications, took the stars down, measured brightness and spectral lines, these amazing women practically none of whom were formally qualified in the field. They were everything from just... Well, at the beginning, they they had little more than a high school education, Mm. but as the program progressed, it was college-educated and experienced people who'd who'd learned how to use a telescope, knew a lot of astronomy before they got to Harvard. But but we're we're starting with with passionate women who were married to a man in the field or someone who came to work as a maid in the organisation and ends up... Tell tell us that story. A maid ends up discovering galaxies. Yes, yes. So this was Williamina Fleming. She was a Scottish immigrant and, and went to America with her husband. But he disappeared from her life at a time... She was pregnant, so she took a domestic servant position at the observatory in the residence. And the director, Edward Pickering, immediately recognized her as much too intelligent to be working in that role. So he moved her into the observatory and taught her how to do the calculations that were necessary and also gave her some of the plates to analyze. And she immediately proved herself highly competent so he helped her go home to scotland to give birth and and said if you come back you have a job here it was a fascinating time what we were starting to learn about the universe then it's also yes. around the same time that a man called simon newcomb who was the essentially the chief astronomer of the united states yes. the president of astronomy in the united states makes this famous quote around the time that astronomy it's, we're pretty much done. We're wrapped up. We're yeah. pretty much gone as far as we can. Down One this. comet is much like another. Yeah, yeah. We, that's, that, thanks, astronomy. Yeah. That's pretty much all we can tell you. No offence to Simon. In 1890, that's a, that's a beautiful thing yeah, to have said now. because they really thought that the stars were beyond reach, that there just was no way to ever figure out what they were made of or how they worked. Mm. It seemed one of those beyond science questions. But... Photography, spectroscopy, coming into astronomy at that time opened all those doors. And can I ask you, Dave, you said photography, which most people would understand, and spectroscopy, which plays a crucial role in the glass universe. What's the spectroscopy? It comes from spectrum? What, what are we talking We're about? We're talking about 
passing the light of the stars through a prism. So the stars appear on the photographic plate, not as points of light, but as strips that look something like a barcode. And in the lines of the spectrum lie the secret of the chemical composition and many other things as well. So if I'm looking at two different plates and I see two different barcodes, two different sets of lines or across a series of plates if different stars' barcodes look reasonably similar and other stars' barcodes look quite different, that's telling me something about the chemical composition of the stars yes. from which the, the light came? Yes, it turns out it's telling you a lot more than that, which people didn't realize at the beginning. Mm. But the one of the challenges was to create a classification system and say, okay, we have some stars with this kind of barcode and some with that. And what does that mean, that stars exist in these various states? Is it an evolutionary process? Is it a difference in chemicals? Is it a difference in temperature? What is it? And that's why this was such an exciting time in the science, isn't it? Because today it will blow your mind when you stop to think someone will say, I'm looking at this distant star and I think the atmosphere around it must be this much nitrogen. How can right. you possibly... Right, and I know exactly what temperature it is too. This yeah. is the very beginning of that journey to where it's more than just a point of light in the sky. I might be able to say something about what it's made of? It's the dawn of astrophysics. And it's why astronomy, for me, is such a fascinating field today because you can go to a, a store today and if you want to spend, you know, say seven or $800 and buy so a good quality telescope, you're using something that a decade ago is what absolute professionals in the field would have used, the explosion in cheap lens making mm -hmm. and, and, and manufacturing. And that's why astronomy is still probably the only science where an absolute mug amateur like myself could make a discovery you could that makes yeah. printable literature if i just happen to be looking you, you hear these wonderful stories about some lovely old woman who looks at the same spot of the sky and then see something a bit brighter and contacts the universe and they go well well done you just you just spotted a supernova well that would be unusual yes but uh, <laughs> but there's so much crowdsourcing now and mm. people volunteering to look at images from the Hubble telescope or, or some other powerful instrument that's bringing in more information than anybody can look at in These real time. citizen science citizen projects, science as they're called. Citizen science projects, call. right. And people volunteer to look at those images, and they are making discoveries. You're a bit of an eclipse lover. Oh, yes, myself. guilty what, as charged. And this yeah. is great, because so many of your books, The Planets, and, you know, talk about looking at the sky. What is it about eclipses that get you going so much? It is the most phenomenal sight you can imagine. Have you ever seen one? Yes. Okay. I think I read you so, saying the closest thing to a miracle, a miracle. you could hope it to is, see. It is, it is like witnessing a miracle. I, I really feel that is not an exaggeration because the whole world around you is inverted by the phenomenon. You're in broad daylight and suddenly the sky goes dark, the stars come out, the air gets cold... It is, it is a full-body experience, and it's beautiful. Is there a single one you've seen that top all the others? Is there a number well, one on your express list of eclipse hits? Yes, because the first one I saw, which was in 1991, was long. So it was more than six minutes. And in recent years, 
two minutes, two minutes plus. I saw one that was a totality of only 37 seconds. Mm. So six minutes is just obscenely long. You know, it's, mm. it's time enough, even if you completely understand what's happening and why, to feel a little bit frightened. I, I can still picture at that 37-second eclipse a group of adults staring on in wonderment while some kids there on their phone... <laughs> quickly sending someone a message on Instagram and missing We were it. out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Nobody was doing Instagram. <laughs> now, let's have let's let's revisit our our ding-dong battle, our oh, argument okay. because uh, at, at the a novel. at the Byron Bay Writers Festival I compared your writing style and storytelling style, for example, to radio journalism. I said radio journalism presenting these bite-sized pieces compared to your long-form scientific novels. Right. And you stopped me at the word novel. Yes, because Why? to me, a novel is fiction, and what I'm writing is nonfiction. But I take novel as a compliment, hmm. because it means it's enjoyable. I read one review of The Glass Universe that said people will find themselves beguiled by Davis Abel's prose. What a nice thing to say. If I asked you to read a section, would you, could you read a section of Glass Universe for us and we can let the listeners to the big questions be the judge as to whether you're a novel writer or not? I'd be happy to. So you're about to read from the Glass universe, and I should just get you to clarify quickly the, the role that glass played. Why, why were these plates of glass used, David? Because that was the technology of photography at the time. The, uh, even if you went to a portrait studio to have your picture taken, there would be a piece of glass with photographic emulsion painted on it. So while some of our more mature listeners to the big questions can remember the old days of film in a canister in the ah, back yes. of a camera, well before that it was a glass plate with a sort of paint of film on it Right. that the light hit and the image was born on. And the image became real in the emulsion. Why don't you yeah. take us on a journey into the glass universe, Davis Abel? So I'm going to read the very opening passage because we've just been talking about eclipses, and there's one mentioned here. The Draper Mansion, uptown on Madison Avenue at 40th Street, exuded the new glow of electric light on the festive night of November 15, 1882. The National Academy of Sciences was meeting that week in New York City, and Dr. and Mrs. Henry Draper had invited some 40 of its members to dinner. While the usual gaslight illuminated the home's exterior, novel Edison incandescent lamps burned within, some afloat in bowls of water for the amusement of the guests at table. Thomas Edison himself sat among them. He had met the Drapers years ago on a camping trip in the Wyoming Territory to witness the total solar eclipse of July 29, 1878. During that memorable interlude of midday darkness, as Mr. Edison and Dr. Draper executed their planned observations, Mrs. Draper had dutifully called out the seconds of totality, 165 in all, for the benefit of the entire expedition party from inside a tent, where she remained secluded, blind to the spectacle, lest the sight of it unnerve her and cause her to lose count. <laughs> so, first of all, exuded the new glow, summer float in bowls of water, memorable interlude of midday darkness. That's a novel. Thank you. Thank you. What I tell the students is everybody has better things to do than to read your story. You have very little time 
in which to pull people in and say, this is worth your time. So work at it. Don't expect that you'll have their attention. And I love the opening image of the woman inside the tent, lest it all be a bit much for her, because this is the story of uh, what was expected of women in these times and the role these women played, and beautifully, the word computer. So while the man and his telescope took the picture and then the women did the calculations, that was the computing as such, which harks back to when we see those big building-sized computers back in the 1950s like ENIAC etc it was a professor who would tell them how to turn the valves on and off but it was a lot of women uh, mostly women who'd run around and turn the appropriate valves on and off were the computers again and the recent things we're learning about african-american women in the american space race right these brilliant brilliantly talented mathematicians who were guiding you know spacecraft re-entering the earth etc their stories only now being told there's a for me a fascinating through line of women playing massive behind the scene roles in these epochal moments absolutely although at the very beginning at astronomical observatories the computers were men so even getting to that level was was a step up for women. Is it easy to write like no, that? No, if it were easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> I love the Thomas Mann quote that a writer is someone who finds writing more difficult than it is for other people. Oh, I like that. Are you a, are you a set when you're writing... I'll go from 8 in the morning till midday, regardless, I will do four hours, I will take a 30-minute break, I will come back, or do you wait for the muse to take hold? No, no, I, I, I go to work every day, but I don't have a set number of hours, because if it's really an off day, there's no sense in flogging yourself, you'll only have to rewrite it tomorrow. <laughs> how long does it take you to realise if it's really an off day? I presume there's not many of them, but how long before you know it's just not today, Dava? A couple hours. And are there days when it's just... Flowing out of your fingers like water? Yes, but they're very rare. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What's that moment like? It is the greatest high I know. It really is. It's, um, there's nothing like, you know, people think it's so glamorous to get to take a trip like this and be on lots of podcasts and writers' (laughs) festivals. (laughs) But the best part of being a writer is about sitting alone in a room when the work is going well. Wow. There's a big push at the moment to get more women into science, encourage them into fields, yes. etc. The high school I attended was a specialised high school for students interested in science. Yeah, the Bronx Science High Bronx School. Bronx High School of Science, right. So the admission test when I applied, which would have been 1960 or 61, we were just told that boys would be admitted preferentially over girls. Ow. In a ratio of about three or four to one. And that did not upset anybody because mm. it was just the way the world was. So we just thought, okay, and, and that's how it was. Now, I went back there as commencement speaker a few years ago, and it was 50-50. Mm. So. That's a great thing. This podcast is called The Big Questions. Are there big questions that play around in your mind? What's a big question that Davis Sabell would like answered? Um, will the United States ever acknowledge the existence of climate change? That's <laughs> the big question on my mind these days. You, you're laughing? No, but I try I, to laugh, yes. but it's not funny. I'm lucky enough to be able to laugh from a comparative Actually, distance. Actually, you're but not. Exactly. Because, it affects us all. Because the atmosphere is shared by all of us, and um, 
the wholesale destruction of it is really not good for anybody. Are you writing something at the moment? No, I can't think of what I might add to the discussion that would change things. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was very inspired visiting Canberra and the Questacon mm-hmm. and hearing the director there talk about a program for schools about encouraging students to come up with a plan for the planet mm-hmm. because it's their future and really providing uh, mentors from science and business to encourage them to be thinking creatively about, about how to make the atmosphere an atmosphere of hope, to use Tim Flannery's term. I'm going to get busy um, doing something probably as a volunteer. I, honestly, I thought about going into the schools where I live mm. and introducing this plan for the planet idea and have already asked the director at the Questacon to send me information on, on the program just to be able to feel that I was doing something useful would be great. You, you strike me as the sort of person who prefers to get busy than have nothing to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a danger to myself if I don't have a project. I know that. Well, thank you so much for your valuable time today. And you, you. you stay dangerous for all of us, Davis. Okay, Bell. Janice. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios. Executive producer Jamie Show, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Big questions. <laughs>